Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, let me just add my welcome to Julian's. It is great to see you here this morning on a, a cold and yet sunny day. It's a lovely day outside, isn't it? But if you're sitting on that side, you might be feeling a little bit cool right now. Uh, the heaters are working on this side and yet not on that side. The bless the others. Anyway, I warn you for next week, uh, we're, we're working on that, but it might take some time to get it sorted. Uh, it is great to be here, and um, if you're looking at this outline, on the back there is an outline of where we're going in Hebrews 3 this morning. Uh, grab your Bibles, great to have them open as we uh, look at it together and see what God is saying to us in his word this morning. Let's pray, ask God to help us. <clears throat> Our gracious God, we thank you for your word, which reveals you to us, that we might know you that we might know your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the work of your Spirit in this world and in our hearts. And we just pray, Lord God, that you would give us a greater understanding of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Or can I say, do you ever wonder if being a Christian is worth it? Uh, it? It's possible to ask that question, I think, as a Christian. And it's possible to ask that question if you're not yet a Christian, but are wondering if it's worth it. I spoke to a guy recently who told me that he was raised by a father who was a committed Marxist. Uh, his father had convinced him that God was non-existent and that Christians were fools and dangerous deceivers. And he said that he always, had always been hostile to God and his people, but recently he had met a few Christians and they had shaken his perception of them. They seemed to have a better way of living in this world than he did. Um, he, uh, he said that they seemed to be kinder and more thoughtful than his experience with non-believers. And he had begun to think that he probably should check out what Christianity was actually about because he actually had never really looked into it. Because he found that they seemed to have something special. And that is exactly what the writer to the Hebrews is trying to impress upon his readers they do possess something extremely special as Christians. And they need encouragement to remember just how precious the salvation that God has won for them in Jesus, how precious that actually is. Because life is not easy in this world. And the people of, that are being written to by the writer of Hebrews, they're suffering, uh, they're suffering for their faith. They're experiencing hardship and rejection. And the human heart is naturally against suffering, isn't it? We would much prefer to avoid suffering if we possibly can. So what is going to help us stand firm in our Christian faith and endure any hardship we are or we may yet face? The Christians in Hebrews were in, uh, in danger of drifting away from their great salvation, of, of losing confidence or of hardening their hearts towards God. And largely because they were suffering for being Christian or perhaps because the sinful pleasures of this world were also distracting them. So was God worth holding on to when it only led to suffering? What value is there in being Christian if it doesn't protect us from the trials of life? It's worse still when it actually creates extra trials, extra sufferings. And so the constant refrain in, in Hebrews is, you must remember Remember, remember Jesus. The writer keeps saying, look at what Jesus has done for us. Don't give up. Hold fast your confidence in him. Because in Jesus, we have a great salvation and we have a great future. 
Now, last week we heard about this great salvation. Uh, you might remember, as Kurt spoke, we talked about sins forgiven, our, our judgment paid for by Jesus' death, welcomed lovingly by God into his family, become brothers and sisters of Jesus, delivered from the power and the fear of death, all ours through Jesus who rules the world to come. And so the focus so far has been all about Jesus. And yet now our attention is turned more deliberately to the world to come, the world that Jesus rules over in absolute perfection and righteousness. And so look at what he says to them and he says to us at the beginning of uh, chapter 3 there in verses 1 and 2. Let me just read that for you. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. Now, there are actually three things for us to consider here in these first six verses of chapter 3. Uh, That is, firstly, our heavenly calling. Secondly, Jesus, our apostle and high priest. What does that mean? And then thirdly, we should consider Jesus' superiority over Moses. Now, we'll consider Jesus in a moment. First, I just want to quickly consider our heavenly calling. Now, Christians are people who have heard and believed a heavenly calling. And as a result of that, we are sharers in this heavenly calling. It's a heavenly calling because it comes from heaven, that is, it comes from God, and it's a heavenly calling because it invites us and leads us to heaven, to God. It's a calling that is meant to show us the way home to God. God is calling us to share in heaven with him. It's another way of speaking about the world to come, the the new heavens and the new earth that the writer spoke about back in chapter 2, verse 5. Notice the uh, significant way he addresses them here in this passage, though. He addresses them as holy brothers. Now, can I just say brothers just means brothers and sisters. It's kind of a cover-all family term. And the writer's not standing on the sidelines, notice, barking orders at them because they're struggling. He's not standing over them telling them to get their act together. He's actually alongside them as a fellow traveller, encouraging and urging them on. It recognises that as Christians we're part of a fellowship. And notice he calls them holy, which means they, that just means they already belong to God. All Christians are holy in the sense that we have been set apart. That's what holy means, to be set apart, dedicated to the service of God. We have been called by God and we've been set apart for God. And so Christians are people who have been gripped by this calling The word of God broke through our resistance, took hold of us with the truth and love of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus has reconciled us to God and he's now leading us home to heaven. Which means we have a great hope. God has spoken from heaven and he's made a way to heaven. And we have believed and our hope and confidence are firm. And can I add that the reason our confidence is firm is not because of ourselves. I mean, there are sinners of every kind in this room here this morning. Sexual sinners, lying sinners, stealing sinners, gossiping sinners, greedy sinners. I'm one of them. The hope of a heavenly calling doesn't hang on people, there for people who never sin. 
If it did, we would all be hopeless. But our hope and confidence actually hang on Jesus, the salvation that he has won for us. And that's why verse 1 continues, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That's, that's what we're doing this morning. That's what preaching is about. It's what kids' church is about. It's what growth groups are about. It's about considering Jesus. Now, we often think that considering Jesus is something that non-believers should do. And, of course, that's right. And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here this morning, we're really glad that you're here. And if you've got questions about anything we say this morning, we would love you to take the time to come and say good day and ask us about it. But Hebrews is devoted to helping Christians consider Jesus. Holy brothers, consider Jesus. So why does he say that? Don't Christians kind of automatically consider Jesus? Well, the answer to that is no. I mean, remember the warning back just in the last chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, Therefore we must pay more close, much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. See, the danger is, is constantly in our way that we will stop considering Jesus and become more interested in other things and drift away from the word of salvation. And so he says to these struggling Christians, put your thinking caps on. And Christians have often been accused of removing their brains when they become Christians. But actually quite the opposite is true. Christians are called on to think carefully. In verse 1 he says to them, consider Jesus. That is, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Think through what you know about Jesus. Look at what Jesus has done for us and don't give up. We're actually called on to be thinking Christians. So what is it we're to think through to fix our thoughts on, to consider about Jesus? Well, verse 1 goes on. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. I know you're getting concerned that I'm still in verse 1, but we'll move on quicker. See, Jesus is God's apostle and high priest. Now, apostle just means one who is sent. And so Jesus is the one sent from God to earth with the revelation of his heavenly calling. And then he says, secondly, that Jesus is our high priest. Now, the the high priesthood of Jesus is going to get picked up at length in the next few weeks, but it was introduced into the argument back at the end of chapter 2, and high priest just means the one who is a go-between. His role is to offer a sacrifice so that there can be reconciliation between us and God. And so Jesus is our high priest who represents God to us and us to God. And so have a look back, if you can, in chapter 2. I'm sorry, back two verses to chapter 2, verse 17, if you can just flick your eyes back there. He says there, Therefore he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I mean, that great phrase that no one understands, make propitiation, just means make a sacrifice for our sins that brings God's anger at us to an end and makes us his friends. So what the writer is saying is, you Christians, consider Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Why? Because he is God's apostle who brought you your calling and he is the final high priest of God who sacrificed himself for you 
to reconcile you to God and guarantee your homecoming to heaven. See, consider Jesus, God's apostle, the final word of God, and God's high priest, the final way to God. Well, finally, we're, uh, sorry, this, this first little bit here, we're con- to consider Jesus' superiority over Moses. Uh, the writer has used a series of contrasts already in Hebrews um, in his efforts to capture this surpassing greatness of Jesus. Um, there are similarities to notice first. That is, notice that both Moses and Jesus, he says, were faithful. That is, being faithful is being true to what you've taken on. Uh, even to your own detriment, you'll stick with it. That is being faithful. Jesus and Moses were both faithful to the task that God had given them. However, it's not the similarities that the author wants us to focus on here. Rather, it's the contrast. That is, where to consider Jesus' superiority to this great man, Moses. And can I say, um, uh, the contrast here really means something because Moses was one of a kind in his day. He had a more intimate relationship to God than any other prophet. To hear Moses was to hear God speak. There was no one greater, greater than Moses at the time. And yet what we're told here is that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. Notice he says that there in verse 3. And the illustration he uses is the greater glory that is due to the builder of a house as compared to the house itself. Can I say, it's important to understand that that the writer here is not really talking about buildings as a whole, even though he's making that comparison there, because God's house and the way that he uses it here in Hebrews just simply means God's people. The Bible says that we are his household, the dwelling place of God. There's no household of God without the people of God. And the astonishing reason that Jesus is superior here is because Jesus is the builder of the house and Moses is a part of the house. In other words, Jesus is the builder of the people of God while Moses is one of the people of God. And so therefore Jesus is Moses' builder. And if Moses was worthy of great glory, how much greater the glory due to Jesus However, that's not the only way that Jesus is superior to Moses. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. That is, Jesus' position is different. He is faithful, not as a servant in God's house, but as a son over God's house. And so again... Jesus, as a son, is superior to Moses in at least three ways. That is, as the son, he owns the house of God. He rules the house of God, and he provides for the house of God. Now, by comparison, Moses is just a servant in the house. He doesn't own it. He doesn't rule it. He doesn't provide for it from his wealth. And so consider Jesus in relation to this great man, Moses. And the striking thing here, I think, in in verse 6 is that the writer wants you to immediately apply this superiority of Jesus to yourself. Look at how verse 6 ends. So, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. See, that is the church is the house of God today. And we're not talking about buildings, we're talking about people 
which means that Jesus this morning is our maker, our owner, our ruler, our provider. He's the son. We're the servants. We are the household of God. And Moses is one of us in this household. And he's our our fellow servant through his prophetic ministry. But Jesus is our maker. He's our owner, our ruler, our provider. And we are his house. That is, we are his people. We have this heavenly calling. Notice, if. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That is, the proof is in the if. The evidence that we are part of the household of God is that we we don't throw away our hope. We are God's hope, God's house, God's people, but only if we hold on to two things. That is our confidence and the hope of which we boast. In fact, this if is so important here that the rest of chapter 3 supports and explains it. Verse 6 actually doesn't teach that if we, if we hold fast our confidence in our boasting and hope that we will become one of God's house. Rather, it shows that we are God's house. See, here is what actually defines the household of God. See, God's people hope in God. God's people are confident in God. They hold fast to God as their boast. I wonder what you're hoping in this morning. Where are you looking for confidence? In yourself? In shrewd investing? In physical fitness? Hard work, perhaps? See, the word of God to you this morning is, consider Jesus. Consider how great he is. And put your hope in him. There's great wisdom and benefit in holding firm to Jesus. But the author isn't finished, notice. There's a second aspect to his overall call by the author to hold fast our confidence. And it's actually kind of the negative aspect. The rest of chapter 3, he actually warns us of the great foolishness and disastrous consequences of not holding firm to Jesus, of hardening our hearts, of sinful rebellion, of unbelief. Look at look what he says right through the second half. So verse 8, he says, Today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. Or verse, or verse 10, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. Or verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And again, he says the same thing today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then finally, at the, right at the end, verse 19, So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now notice the two ways that the scriptures actually help us persevere in our faith here. On the one hand, they encourage us to take notice of what we've got in Jesus, the great privileges and benefits of being Christian. And then on the other hand, they warn us of the great dangers of rejecting the Son of God and the salvation and hope he brings. If, If you and I are going to hold on to our hope in Jesus and our confidence in where we're heading, it actually requires faithfulness. We must continue in our faith. In verses 7 to 11, he actually quotes from the Old Testament, from Psalm 95. The second part of Psalm 95 is the example of faithlessness. It's the part that we read in our passage here from 7 to 11. The faithlessness of the people of God in the days of Moses. 
God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. But when things got hard, their hearts grew hard and they rebelled against God and they were cut off from the promised land. Actually, Psalm 95 is a very important psalm because if you read it, it begins with great joy. Joy in the worship of God, it's joy for God, for his greatness, for his goodness. And in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 95, we read this. This is how it says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. It's, it's full of praise for who God is and his care of us. But then in the very next verse, in verse 7 of Psalm 95, it moves from the worship of this great and wonderful God very starkly to this warning not to harden our hearts. Actually, the, uh, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer says to say this psalm every day of the year. The prayer book uses it as a call to hear God's word properly. Come sing and rejoice because God is great. Come worship and bow down because we are his. Come listen to my words today because they are words of salvation. And whatever you do, do not have a sinful, unbelieving heart. See, there's the problem that the writer of the, to the Hebrews is concerned about in verse 12 of Hebrews 3. See what he says there, verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. See, in the Bible, the, the heart is not our, our feelings and our emotions. It's more the mind and will that is driven by desires. A heart that is hardened to God's word leads to sinful rebellion that further leads us to unbelief. See, here is the great concern the writer has for God's people who are enduring hard times. Our problem with this passage, I think, is sometimes a bit different. We want to know, is it really possible for a Christian to fall away? So that doesn't kind of fit with what we believe the Bible teaches in other places. It's God who has saved us. By his mercy, by his grace, we don't save ourselves. And the Bible teaches that God promises to keep those whom he saved to the very end. And so when we read this warning, do we think, well, well, yes, you know, they, the old people, people in Israel's time, they fell in the wilderness, but don't you worry, that couldn't possibly happen to you. Well, no, this is a serious warning to Christians in the first century. The people on Moses' day had heard God speak through Moses. They'd seen God's mighty works in rescuing them. And remember when Jesus was alive? Remember the crowds that followed Jesus, hanging off his words, marvelling at his miracles? And yet when it became difficult to follow Jesus, most of them walked away in sinful unbelief. See, the writer isn't worried about the theoretical issues here. He's warning us. There's no hope without Jesus. There is no other salvation. See, one of the ways that God keeps us to the end is by warning us. The word of God comes to us to warn us not to fall away, not to harden our hearts. We're to live in faith as they didn't live in faith. And notice that this is God's word to us today. See verse 7? He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... See, it's not what he said back then, it's what he still says today. Now, sometimes we might wish that God would speak to us in different ways, 
But here is the typical way that God speaks to us, through his word. Both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible are the way that we should expect that God will speak to us by his spirit today. And the point is that the people of Israel are an example, they're an object lesson, if you like, for both his readers and for us today. He wants those who claim to be Christian to last, to persevere, to remain faithful. And so he says, look at Israel and don't be like them. We must not harden our hearts and throw away our confidence and hope in God. And so the story of Israel is an example for those who claim to be Christian. Do not treat God's grace with contempt. I mean, there are too many professing Christians who want the mercy of forgiveness so that they won't go to hell, but have hard hearts towards the Lord when it comes to daily fellowship with him. Are you rejoicing in the fact that you're sharing in the heavenly calling, that your sins are forgiven and that your great hope in heaven is exceedingly glorious? Or are you grumbling because things aren't all as you wish they were at the moment? Because perhaps you are really facing trials of consequences or trials or consequences that are, are difficult. Now, I don't doubt those trials are real and that they're difficult. But do they cause you to grumble? It's unbecoming of the great calling that you've received. It, it questions the undeniable goodness, I think, of God towards you, and it places us in grave danger. And so what is then the solution to hardness of heart? What do we do about that? Well, we could say, read your Bible more, uh, pray more regularly. And they're great answers, aren't they? They'd be good things to do. We need to listen to Jesus. We do that through his word. But they're not the complete answer here, are they? The answer here is to fix your eyes on Jesus. And notice what he wants all of us, uh, notice that he wants all of us to help each other do that. That is, he wants each of us to be concerned for each other. Have a look from verse 12 and following. He says there, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But, verse 13, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, what we, we constantly need here at Wild Street, if we are to press forward, is for each and every one of us who professes to be Christian, to take verse 13 with utmost seriousness. See to it, as a community, that none of you has an unbelieving, a sinful, unbelieving heart. And what's the key way that we can express that concern? Well, verse 13, notice, but exhort one another every day. Now, to, to exhort just means to strongly urge, to warn, to warmly encourage. It's those kind of things. But it means primarily to speak to one another. I mean, delivering a meal is a wonderful thing to do, but here he is particularly wanting us to speak to one another. The means that God uses to enable us to hold fast our confidence and hope is the Christian community. Eternal security is a community project. Not just prayer, not just Bible reading, not just turning up to church, all those things are incredibly important, but daily exhortation of other believers is God's appointed way to enable you to persevere to the end. And what are we to speak to one another? 
Well, what the writer of Hebrews is doing with them is what we're supposed to do. He wants them and us to do that together. It's like an everyday exhortation. I mean, preaching is important, but it's not the only form of exhortation that we need. I need a word every day. It comes from the person standing next to me. He wants us to exhort and encourage one another. That is, you'll need to think about how you talk to people here on Sunday. It'll affect the attitude with which you go to your growth group each week. It'll happen at the bedside of your kids. It'll happen at the breakfast table. See, we need to be deeply conscious, don't we, of our responsibility for one another in church. To speak to one another in these ways will actually mean stepping out of our comfort zones because we don't always find that easy, do we? But, you know, you belong to the greatest household in the world. So why would you ever want to give it up? And so what we need to do, sorry, what do we need to talk to each other about over morning tea together as we gather this morning? Or as you go to your growth group this week, what do we need to say? Well, maybe we need to say something like this. How's it going with your soul? How are you finding your life with Jesus? Are you thankful for the salvation that is one for you? What are you struggling with? Maybe we could say something like that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have such a great salvation in the Lord Jesus. That his sacrifice of his own life for us just transforms our lives in remarkable ways. Thank you that we have a hope that is absolutely secure, that can never be taken away from us. And thank you for the warning to watch our hearts and to help each other watch each other's hearts so that we can encourage and spur one another on to look forward to all that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would help us to be a church that exhorts one another daily. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.